please be seated. Brilliant. It's a great song. Song of faith. It's exactly what Jacob did. Job, even. It's what Job did. Literally from the ashes. He cried out in worship, I know my Redeemer lives. It's what David did in Psalm 13. Crying out from opposition. A situation where he couldn't see answers. He said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And in the teeth of the storm, and in the face of the mountain, and in the face of the uncrossable sea, I will sing a little louder. I will worship him. It's a great song. Hopefully we'll catch on with that a bit more. So we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verse 19 to 13. Last week we looked together at the first part of the Lord's Prayer. We saw that it broke into two parts. The first part, 9 to 10, is about God's agenda God's priorities, and that's what we looked at last week. So this week, we look at the second part, verses 11 to 13, and it's about our prayer requests, our needs, and, and that's where we're going to focus this week. And this week, I just to warn you, it's, it's quite challenging, so I hope you're open to that. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. This is a reminder that God is our provider. He is able to provide what we need for today. Do you believe that? This isn't a make me rich prayer. This is not a prayer about increasing my stuff, increasing my material possessions. This is about bread for today. This is not a prayer about our wants, our hopes, our dreams, our desires. It's okay to have all those wants and dreams and desires. And God blesses us with many of them. I pray blesses you with them all. He will certainly bless you with some. This is a prayer about the basic needs to be able to live and grow and thrive. So let me ask you, are you thankful for what you have? I'll ask you again. Are you thankful for what you have? Yes. See, the truth is, the vast majority of us in this country have way more than we need. According to the World Bank, you can look all this up on Google, it's all there, but according to the World Bank, just short of 50% of the world's population lives on £4.18 a day. Just think about that for a moment. £4.18 a day, 50% of the world's population. Based on income, most of us in this room are in the richest 10% of the world's population. Can you believe that? Most of us in this room, based on income, we're in the richest 10% of the world's population. And if your income into your house, joint income, however you add it up, is 40,000 a year, you are in the richest 6% of the world's population. Does that surprise you? Just look at the person next to you and say, you are rich. And now say, lend me a fiver. No, I don't. <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. I wonder if this prayer is even considered relevant in our materialistic Western setting. I can think of parts of the world where it's very, very meaningful. 
Can we really be content with our daily bread? Is our daily bread enough? Is it enough to cause us to be thankful? Or does our desire for more cause us to take for granted what we have? Do we live in the place of thankfulness or the place of striving for this and for that? Do we live in the place of contentment or the place of living way beyond what our income can afford because we should have all this stuff? Because I'm not content with my daily bread. In Philippians 4 verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secrets of being content in any and every situation. The man or woman who can say those words lives in the place of peace. Give us this day our daily bread. Let me encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer and slow down as you read these words. And pause to give thanks for what you have. The things we take for granted. Just begin to say, thank you God for all these things that I have. Begin to thank God for everything that's way beyond your daily bread. The blessings that he's given and poured into your life. And from that place, by his grace, seek to be a blessing to others. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sinned against us. Forgive us our sins. How can we know our sins are forgiven? And what about the sins we commit while we are Christians? So 1 John 1 verse 9 to verse 2 chapter 2. The Apostle John is telling us, he's speaking to Christians, and this is what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write that you will not sin, but... If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The atonement is a key foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. And it's so often misunderstood. I'm going to give you one minute. We didn't have time in the first. I'll give you one minute, all right? Either just sit on your own and think about it. But if you don't mind talking to the person next to you, two minutes, explain the atonement. Shock them with your genius theological nous, all right? And then I'm going to tell you what it is, and you can see if they were talking a load of rubbish to you or not. Two minutes, explain the atonement to the person next to you. Have a go. Okay, it's gone a little bit quiet, so you've said everything you you know about the atonement already. From the very early centuries of church history, there have been various theories of the atonement. The church fathers wrestled with it until they eventually got to one of these councils and nailed it all down. And all sorts of things were said in the early centuries. 
you went to Bible college, you would study theories of the atonement. There's a fair few. And you'd be required to write an essay on this stuff. And if you studied the theories of the atonement, you would have come across the payment to Satan theory. Or it's called the, the ransom theory. Which says, we were captive to Satan... He had us all tied up, and in order to set us free, a ransom had to be paid to Satan, a payment to Satan. And so this theory says that's what God did. That's what the atonement is. He sent his son as a ransom, a payment to Satan, satisfying Satan's conditions and buying our freedom back. Mark 10.45 would be a verse that might be used to support that. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. No less heavyweights than Augustine and Oregon taught this. But thankfully, as those early church fathers wrestled it out and grappled with scripture, they understood that that was not the atonement at all. Today, people tend to get a bit mixed up because the picture often portrayed, and you might have said this, is God is really, really angry with sinners. And unchecked, he's going to destroy them all. He's an angry God and he's going to, he's going to blast all the sinners. But just in the nick of time, Jesus would be sent. Jesus would come to appease this angry God, to calm him down. Well, God is angry. He is angry at sin. And so he should be. But the anger of God, the wrath of God is not like it might be for us. God is never in an out of control fit of rage. His wrath, as J.I. Packer puts it, is a right and necessary action to objective moral evil. Even you and I are capable of that kind of anger. A righteous anger. Where injustice, you, you feel the anger rise up at an injustice or something that's wrong. And maybe from that place, acts of compassion will flow to do something about it. God could not be holy and he could not be just if he ignored sin. If God ignored sin, we wouldn't want to worship that God. We really wouldn't. It would all fall apart. Sin has to be dealt with. And God found a solution filled with grace and love and truth. God sent his son Jesus to take our sin, to somehow bear our sin, to become sin for us, to take your sin, my sin, and the sin of the whole world. He became our substitute. He atoned for us. And that's where the, the doctrine, as we now name it, comes from. Substitutionary atonement. He took our place. Jesus didn't die to appease or calm down an angry God. He gave his life as a demonstration of love and grace to satisfy God's holy law. His justice, his righteousness. And through the mystery of the Trinity, we understand that in Christ, God gave himself. Punished himself. So the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 John. Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1 verse 5. God is light. And so he cannot ignore sin. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He can't ignore sin. But John also tells us in 1 John 4 verse 8. God is love. And it's for God so loved sinners that he gave his one and only son. At the cross, we see both God is light and God is love. Sin is judged. The price is paid. But grace and forgiveness flow. 
And when you came to Christ, when I came to Christ in repentance and accepted him as Lord and Savior, our sins were forgiven in a moment, in an instant. And that's another very big doctrinal truth. Justification. In the moment I was justified. I didn't have to do anything else. It doesn't drag on. There isn't a moment where God says, you've done enough. I can now justify you. When we come to him in repentance and accept what he's done on the cross, in that moment, we're justified. In that moment, the filthy rags of our unrighteousness are removed and we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. In that moment, our name is written in his book. The old is gone. The new has come. And now by his grace and power, By the Spirit, we walk in the light as He is in the light. Are you glad this morning you don't have to earn your salvation? Are you glad this morning it's not a performance-related thing? Between now and the day we will see Him face to face, we are being changed from one degree of glory to another, as the Apostle Paul puts it. In other words, we are not yet the finished article. We're not. We're growing in the likeness of Christ. And that is a process. And it's a process we're all in. And that's another big doctrinal truth called sanctification. Sanctification is a process. I am being made into the likeness of Christ. You never lose your L plates. You're a disciple forever. Till the day you see him face to face. Disciple means learner. And all across our journey, God is teaching us, calling us, calling the best out of us, challenging Challenging us, putting his finger on things that need to change. Thank God he doesn't do put his finger on all the things that need to change all at once. So you're glad about that this morning. Patient with us. So back to the Apostle John. And those words, here's what he's saying. I write to you, little children, sons and daughters of God. I write to you, Christians, that while you are on this journey, I write that you will not sin. But if you do sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And if you confess your sin, he's faithful, he's just, he will forgive you, he will cleanse you. God's grace never runs dry. You're glad about that this morning. Jesus paid the price, the past sin, present sin, future sin. When Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins. When we pause at that moment to confess sin, we should never be in doubt that he will forgive us. His grace is truly amazing. It is in the light of this amazing grace that he calls us and challenges us in this prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is very challenging. Some things are easy to forgive. And sometimes hurt and wounds are so deep that forgiving seems impossible. Forgiveness does not mean that justice should not happen, but it does have the power to free you from the poisons and bitterness and resentment which in so many areas holds us back, restricts us, causes us to shrink rather than grow, robs us of joy. Forgiveness is not a feeling choice, it's a faith choice. In this prayer, Jesus invites us to marvel at his grace in our lives. To wonder at the forgiveness we have received. To be lost for words at his grace that flows every day of our lives. Every day we wake up, there's fresh grace. Thank you, Jesus. Every day we wake up, fresh cleansing. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus invites us to rejoice, to be thankful. And from that place, maybe, 
just maybe, we can allow his grace to overflow and by faith to forgive those who have sinned against us. And people do sin against us. And we sin against people too. May God allow us to be so overcome, so overwhelmed with the sense of his grace and his forgiveness in our lives that something will flow out from us, bringing that grace of forgiveness into the lives of others. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. Jesus himself faced temptation. Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Temptation is common to us all. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God does not lead us into temptation, but temptation is all around. In this high-tech, high-visual, high-social-media age, temptation is everywhere. In Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam that he must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 3, 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and it was pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, just before that, there is an exchange between the woman and Satan. And Satan is drawing the woman's attention to the desirability of the tree. He's saying, look at that tree. It's pleasing to the eye. Doesn't it look great? It's attractive. He's leading her into temptation. And that is pretty much what the devil does. He does it with you and me and the people of the world all of the time. Tempts people into chasing things they can't really afford. Tempts people into stuff and materialism. Tempts people into a hundred and one things. The devil didn't make her eat the fruit. Eve tried to blame the devil and Adam tried to blame Eve. But God held both of them accountable for their own actions. The devil made me do it, didn't wash with God. Notice also, there was nothing wrong with the tree. This attractive tree in the middle of the garden. There was nothing wrong with the tree and nothing wrong with the fruit. It was part of the creation that God spoke over. It is good. God, because he knows best, because he's a good, good father, placed a boundary that the woman and the man chose to disobey. And that is at the very, very heart of the problems in the world today. That is at the heart of society's issues. Men and women ignoring God's boundaries. The tree was pleasing to the eye. And Adam and Eve gave in to temptation and it cost them everything. God forgives us of our sins, but there are consequences to sin. It cost them their home. They were thrown out the garden. It cost them their relationship. It was never the same again. Cost them their relationship with God, which now was broken. So before I move on, let me home in on one particular area of temptation. An area we don't often talk very much about in church, and that is sexual temptation. And the story of Joseph in the Old, Temp Old Testament helps us with this. Genesis 39. 
Genesis 39 records the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And in verse 6, it says, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I was going to say that reminds me of me, but it's not true. It's not true. And the fact that you laughed so loud also tells me that it's not true. Thank you. And because Potiphar would have pick of the, the women in the land, I have no doubt his wife was very attractive. Plenty here that was pleasing to the eye. He's handsome. She glances and notices him. She's incredibly attractive. He glances, he notices her. Nothing wrong with attraction. Nothing wrong with sex drive. It's all part of the creation over which God said, this is very good. There's nothing wrong with the tree. But driven by love and the Father heart to protect, God has placed boundaries over this tree. And in this one area in particular, men and women have largely ignored God's way, crashed through that boundary, hook, line and sinker, bought the lie. And it has brought devastation to our world. And I know the medical profession make it easier and easier. But it has brought devastation to our world. And in some parts of our world, still doing big time. Health issues that have brought death and deformity, not to mention the wreckage of family and relationships. When God places a boundary, it's not because he's a spoiled sport, it's because he's a good, good father. He's a good father. He sees a boundary. Enjoy yourselves in all that space. Don't go over there. Because he's going to hurt. Joseph shows us the way. Genesis 39 verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife said to him, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She'd given him an early day. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Three things Joseph teaches us around sexual temptation. Number one, Joseph recognized sin. Joseph recognized this was sin. Verse 9. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You see, this would reflect on Joseph's name. And it would reflect on his family's name. But more important to Joseph was God's name. His name mattered. And his family's name mattered. Of course they do. But God's name. Sometimes we lose sight of the impact on God's name. It's his name in high honor. There can be no good in this, a short-lived pleasure with a whole heap of pain to follow and nobody's name comes out good. Joseph recognized sin and the honor of the name of God meant more to him than anything else. It meant more than the short-lived pleasure. The honor of what God had done in him, the way God had rescued him from prison, the blessings God had poured into his life, Joseph's very sense of destiny at being there meant more to him. God's plan meant more to him. Joseph recognized sin. Then Joseph refused sin. 
Verse 7 and 8. Come to bed with me, she said, but Joseph refused. Verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Here's great clarity from Joseph. No cozy conversations. No exchanging text messages. No listening ear to the pressures of being Potiphar's wife. He's never here. He's always away. He doesn't treat me well. No meetings for coffee to talk it through. No flirting. No suggested photos on Facebook. He refused. Clear. No leading on. Joseph recognized sin. Joseph refused sin. Then Joseph ran from sin. The text says he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Wisdom is not seeing how close to temptation you can get. It's about staying as far away from temptation as possible. Wisdom is knowing yourself and knowing the things that are a big temptation to you that might not be a temptation to me. Wisdom is getting honest with yourself and who you are and knowing if I put myself in that position, I will fall. Wisdom is saying, I will not put myself in that position because his name matters more. My name matters and the name of my family and the name of my church family matters. Wisdom is about action that helps us grow deeper into God's will and God's way. Wisdom is about choices. Choices about the things we watch, the places we go, the time we leave, the company we keep. Choices about what we log on to and the sites that we will visit. Wisdom includes being clear, saying no, running away. So I pray with all my heart, God in heaven, Father in heaven, fill us with wisdom in Jesus' name. Fill us with wisdom in Jesus' name. I pray for every man in this church. I pray for a out, mighty outpouring of wisdom from God in the name of Jesus over every man in this church. I pray for every woman in this church. And I pray for a mighty outpouring of the wisdom of God in Jesus' name. I pray for our young people gathered over there in domain. Living in a world full of temptation. A world of social media and visuals and things that we don't even know about. I pray, oh God, fill them with wisdom in the name of Jesus. Let a wisdom fall from heaven that will saturate their thinking and their being in Jesus' name. God, give them a courage. Give them a courage to go against the flow. Lord, help them to know wisdom, to see wisdom and have the wisdom to stand on it in Jesus' name. And I pray for us as adults that God will give us the power and courage to be good role models to our young people in Jesus' name. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is much to reflect on as we read through the Lord's Prayer. May we be ever thankful for our daily bread. May an attitude of gratitude dominate our personality. May we rejoice that our sins are forgiven. May we rejoice over what Christ has done. Romans 4 verse 8 says, Blessed is the man and blessed is the woman whose sins the Lord will never hold against them. Do you know this morning God will never hold your sins against you? Are you glad about that? I am so glad. 
I'm a blessed man. And you're a blessed man and you're a blessed woman because Christ has paid it all. He's been your substitute. He's taken everything that should have been coming your way. And because of that, God will never hold our sins against us. Thank you, Jesus. May we from that place of understanding the grace and mercy that flows to us every day from our Father in heaven, maybe from that place, could there be an overflow of grace and mercy from our lives to forgive those who sin against us? And when temptation comes our way, may we choose the path of wisdom by God's grace. May we recognize sin, refuse sin, and run from sin. By God's grace. May we be ever thankful for the grace that never runs dry. I write these things that you do not sin. But if you do sin, there is grace. There is grace to cleanse. There's grace to restore. And it doesn't matter how far away you've been and how far you've gone. Maybe you've not been in church for a while. But God wants to say, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what lack of wisdom you have shown. There is a way back. There is a way back in God because his grace never runs dry. There is restoration. Lamentations 3.22, beautiful words. Because of the Lord's great mercy, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Thank you, Jesus. So let me encourage you over the next month or so to regularly read the Lord's Prayer. Read slowly. Pause over a line, over a word. And as you get to our Father, don't rush on. Our Father, remember from last week, our Father means we are part of a family. The Bridge Community family begin to pray for family members here in Bridge Community. Then begin to celebrate His fatherhood over your life. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May your name be honored in my life. May your name be holy in my life. May your name be holy in this nation in Jesus' name. Read slowly. Pause over each line. Use this prayer as a launch pad for worship and prayer and confession. And I pray that as you do, you will have fresh encounters with your heavenly Father, the God who loved you and gave himself for you. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Thank you and God bless you. Let's stand together, friends.